invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Revelation 15. I apologize, the font is going to be a little bit off this morning. It's a little bit smaller than usual. Um, my apologies for that. Uh, still uh, d- dealing with a few changes in how I'm doing things, and there have been a few bumps along the road. So if it's a little bit distracting, I, I do apologize. Revelation 15 in your Bible, you'll notice it's a fairly short chapter, a small chapter here of Scripture. We have been studying the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ for a while now, and it has been a series of very weighty themes, right? We um, uh, have seen a, a great amount of death, a great amount of destruction, while in reality one of the primary themes of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is in fact our blessed hope. Uh, the, the hope that we have in Christ, uh, the victory of Christ, yet that does not necessarily take away from the weight uh, that this book perhaps has, has caused us to rest under because of the amount of destruction, the doom, the unbelief that we have seen in this time. Uh, today's message I've entitled The Calm Before the Storm. It is events that take place just prior to the seven vials or the seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out. This is the, the, the final judgment of God upon the world leading up to what we often call Armageddon. Uh, this is the storm. And today is the calm before the storm. It's my privilege this week to ta- kind of take a pause in the action, uh, in the, the sorrow in the weight, in the doom, even in all the academic things that that we've pursued, and and to take a moment to consider the hope of the saints and the glory of God and His faithfulness to all generations. So that's what we're going to do this morning. It's going to be a lighter message, a lighter theme, and we're even going to end on on a different note this morning. So I hope that it will be an encouragement to you. As we walk through the text, the Bible says, in Revelation 15, verse 1, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. So we, we do come now to this, the, the stage for the final judgments of God, described here as the seven last plagues. The first use of the word plague to describe these final judgments was actually found in Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, in relation to the trumpet judgments, reflecting that there was an increase. The, the seal judgments were not called plagues as such. As the, each seal was broken, there was some corresponding event that happened, obviously orchestrated by God in on the earth, and yet these were not yet uh, judgments proper, plagues as it were. But then we see this concept of plagues come up as the trumpets begin to sound, and once again, these, these last seven judgments are called the seven last plagues. Recall that since chapter 11, we've been somewhat more thematic, right? Focusing upon signs and wonders. And this is the final sign in, in the heavens in chapter 15. Uh, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15. These are signs in the heavens, somewhat more thematic in nature. And uh, John is seeing things in, in a, a more, um, in, in less of a, a, chrono- a chronological way and in more of a contextual way throughout these chapters. And this sign, this final sign, as we see in verse 1, described as great and marvelous, begins with the appearance of the seven angels that are holding these seven vials or these seven bowls filled, John says, with the wrath of God. Never forget 
how much God hates sin. Never forget how much God hates evil. Never forget how much God hates injustice. Never forget that as God looks over the earth and as he uh, uh, brings about the end of things upon the unbelieving world, uh, he is bringing about uh, wrath. It's, it's, It's wrath. It's not just punishment. It is anger. It is, it is God saying, this is wrong. This is against me. This is against all that I am. This is my wrath pouring upon you. We must not forget that. We're tempted by God's long-suffering sometimes to think that God must not care too much about sin because the wicked prosper, right? We talked about that in Jeremiah last week. Jeremiah said, God, let me talk to you about your judgments, right? Why, why are the wicked prospering? Why are they happy? Let God, why is it that these things can happen when, when you hate wickedness? How is it that you can judge these people, but then all these people are getting away with it? And, and yet we're reminded that God's inaction, if we want to call it that, is not apathy. It's long-suffering. It's patience. We must not convince ourselves that sin does not grieve the Lord. That would be a mistake. And the judgments of God contained in this book prove very strongly just how God feels about sin. Verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Now, as we come to verse 2, it becomes apparent that the great and marvelous wonder, the other signs, sign in the heaven, it's not only these seven angels with these seven vials in their hands, uh, but in the heavens there's something else marvelous happening. John says he sees a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, we have only a limited context within which to understand what John is seeing here, but really this limited context should be more than enough. The picture of a sea of glass is not new to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. If we go back to Revelation chapter 4 verse 6 where John describes the throne of God, recall we read this, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne, round about the throne were four beasts, full of eyes before and behind. So as John described what was before the throne of God, not like before, but in the face of, in front of, directly in front of, like it would be right here. That, the, the, the microphone is before me, right? Uh, before the throne, there is this sea of glass like unto crystal. This would be directly in front of the throne and then around the throne would be the four beasts and then around the sea of glass would be the 24 elders. So, it would seem unnecessary to go outside of this context to understand what's happening in Revelation 15. These ones who have been slain are standing directly in front of the throne of God. Why is it a sea mingled with fire? Well, if you recall John's description of the throne, in front of him were the seven lamps that are the Holy Spirit, and then the Lord shining like fire. And so if it's a sea of glass then he sees the sea and the reflection would be the glory of God, the flames of the, of the seven, the, the seven uh, flames, which are the spirit of God. All of that would be reflecting on the sea and all of these people standing there directly in front of the Lord. But what we do know for sure 
standing upon the sea of glass, all those who, according to the text, had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. This is a very interesting description of these people. We would understand them to be martyrs because things are still happening upon earth and yet they are in heaven. But they are said to have gotten victory over the evil upon the earth. And this perspective could be one of two ideas. How is it that they got victory, but they're not standing, you know, they're not, they're not standing on, on the body of Antichrist and his followers with a flag in their hand. It's not the victory that we see here, right? That's not the victory that they got over Antichrist, but they got victory over him and over his mark and over his name. First, it must be understood that to believe, uh, um, excuse me, it, to the believer, Death is not a moment of, of loss, right? Death is a moment of victory. Death is not the moment to the believer where the battle is lost. Death is the moment where the battle is won. It's for this reason that Paul wrote at the end of his life to Timothy, and he said in... Sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. There we go. My apologies. And he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight... I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Paul rightly regarded the end of his days not as the end of all things, but rather as an end of the race. And and he saw it as crossing the finish line. If we think about life as a race and death as the finish line, all of a sudden the finish line, if you've ever run a race, the finish line is the most welcome sight in the world. Right? Races, they, they can be fun from kind of that masochistic standpoint, but they, they're tiring, right? They're exhausting. Uh, you, you run a race, you're tired, your, your, your body is screaming stop, and your mind is saying no, and you're going, and your legs are like jelly, and you're thirsty, and you're sweating, and then you see the finish line, and that's a great thing. That is not, you don't see the finish line. Now, you may not win the race in in a physical standpoint, but the finish line is still the end. It's still the point where you're done. It's over, and that's a good thing. So Paul says death is, is, is a finish line. That's the way he saw death. And to the believer, this is what we must understand. We must understand that death in and of itself is a victory. 1 Corinthians 15 makes that clear. So it's very possible that the idea here that, they're, that in death they finally found victory over the evil men of the world. They're now standing before the throne of God. They're blessed. They're rewarded. They're glorified. The beast and the false prophet remain on earth to go through the judgment of the wrath of God. And here they are having had victory over it. But there's... A, a, at least one more possibility as to what it means that they got victory over the beast. And and it's not that these two have to be in in exclusion. They can both be true. It could be speaking of the fact that they have uh, finished their course, and it could also be speaking of this second concept. This idea is rooted in the concept presented by the same man who penned the words of the revelation of Jesus Christ, that man being John the Apostle. And in 1 John, John says this, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, he says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Faith is the victory, the song says, that overcomes the world. So the moment you humbled yourself before the gospel of Jesus Christ and accepted Christ's finished work on your behalf, you were numbered among those who have overcome the world. 
Satan lost you forever. His power over you was broken. The world's allures, its lies, its deceits, all of this was buried with Christ and you were raised to walk in newness of life. Now, as a believer, you have every right within the volition that God has given you to resubmit yourself to that evil power, to resubmit yourself to the flesh, but that's not because it has any actual power over you. Because in Christ, that chain, the, the chains of, of, of that, of sin, the, the power of sin over you has been broken. So it is perhaps this idea as well that undergirds the description of these martyrs. Those who have gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. They, they did not worship the beast. They did not worship the image of the beast, which the false prophet animated. They did not take the mark of his name, that number of his name, 666. They refused to be associated with the evil man and the evil works. They, they saw the deception. And so they overcame. They overcame the deception. These are the overcomers. On the contrary, to having been to having fallen under the deceits of these lies. They had gotten victory over these lies. And what John sees is this crowd of people standing upon the sea of glass, and he calls them the overcomers, overcoming the number of his name, overcoming his mark, overcoming his image, overcoming the beast. They have overcome. These are the ones that were not deceived. And notice, remember, we, we've talked about the timeline of when the mark of the beast might come to pass, and we have slated it within the general timeline of the, of the midpoint of the tribulation, Right? as we have walked through our timeline. Well, if that is the case, then all of these martyrs that he's seeing here are those who have gone through that point where the mark of the beast has been enacted, where people have made their decision, and these are those that did not. And it's quite possible, as we're looking at it, the reason why they are standing in the heavens is because they were killed because they wouldn't take the mark. It's because they wouldn't take it as we would think back to a parallel concept with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael in the fiery furnace, right? The three Hebrew children in Daniel. And he says, you either bow down and you worship the image or you get thrown into the fiery furnace. And obviously the, they were thrown into the furnace and the Lord preserved them. And yet this same idea, you take the mark or you die. You worship the beast or you die. You worship his image or you die. It's quite possible that what John is seeing is the end of that conflict, that on the day where people were compelled to take the mark, on the, during that time when people were making the decision, do I stick with God, the God of gods, or do I call Antichrist God? Do I take the number of his name? And remember, we've talked about for several weeks now, it will not be a, a choice of deceit. It will not be a, oops, I, I didn't mean to take his name. That's, I didn't think I was doing that. It will be, everybody will know what they are doing. If you take the mark, if you take the mark of his name, you are, you are lotting yourself in with, with Antichrist. You are saying, this man is God. You are saying, I reject the true and living God. These are those that would not do that. And now they are in heaven, having overcome and are martyrs. And they're standing there having what the Bible calls the harps of God. That they were standing upon the sea of glass reflects that they are very, very close to the throne of God, right? They are as close as you can get. The, the 24 elders are farther away from God than them. They are on the sea of glass that the 24 elders surround. They may even be closer than the four beasts. We, we don't know. But what does it mean that they have the harps of God? This is the second time in the book that we've seen the harps of God come up. And it's only the, it is the, the third time in the Bible that the word comes up and it is the last time in the Bible the word comes up. 
We read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. So the 24 elders had these harps as well, but the 24 elders also had, the Bible says, these vials, these golden vials or golden containers of odors as they fell down before the Lamb. The odors are the prayers of the saints. The harps are a symbol of their capacity to worship. The idea here, at least in symbol, if not literally, is that they have all been fitted in the eternal state to adequately praise God. Now, we cannot say explicitly that people in heaven have harps in a literal sense, and we should always resist the urge to see uh, people after they die as going up and sitting on a cloud and playing a harp and being an angel and those sorts of things. We know that you don't become an angel, right? The Bible, angels are created beings. They are entirely different beings from humans. The Bible says we will be as the angels, not marrying or given in marriage, Jesus said. But that does not mean that we will be angels. In, in fact, angels are entirely different beings. We, you do not become an angel when you die. But you're probably not going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp all day either. We should resist the urge to think of people uh, in this sense when they are in heaven. That's not what is meant by this here. But what we see is that the 24 elders had the harps. These martyrs had the harps. And with these harps associated with the elders after speaking about these harps in Revelation 5 and associated with the martyrs after speaking of these harps in Revelation 15 is a song of praise. To that end, we would understand that these harps are, are, are meant to fit them unto this praise, unto this worship. John did see harps in their hands. He uh, did see them in the hands of the elders. They are fitted and prepared to sing praises unto his name. And that is exactly what we see next. Verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways. Thou King of Saints. We find that this first group of people sang two distinct songs. The first song was the Song of Moses, the second being the Song of the Lamb. It is a possibility linguistically that these are the same, but it would be very unlikely that they are the same, as the Song of Moses uh, is slightly different in character from uh, that which, depending on how we interpret the... the um, the idea of the song of the Lamb and the redemption. In order to understand the significance of this, what I'd first like to do is know what the song of Moses is. The song of Moses is found in Exodus 15, and it's a song which Moses and the children of Israel sang following the events surrounding the Red Sea. So if you recall, God had called the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and, he called, and they wandered through the desert, and they came to the Red Sea where they were blocked. There were mountains on each side. The sea was before them, and behind them was Pharaoh and his armies because Pharaoh had decided he didn't want to let the people go. So the people are in a, a difficult place, and then God says to Moses, lift up your hands, and the seas will part. And the seas parted. The, the wind blew and um, parted the seas. It blew from, from east to west. It parted the seas and uh, the, the ground dried up and the nation of Israel walked across on dry ground. They all got across and Moses put his hands down and Pharaoh and his armies were in the sea and the waters engulfed Pharaoh and his armies and destroyed them as they sought to um, destroy Israel. This finalized God's judgment upon the nation of Egypt for their evils that they had committed against God's people, the children of Israel. 
from this, Moses sang a song, and, the, and he led the people in a song. And the song is found in Exodus chapter 15. The Bible says this, Exodus 15, beginning in verse 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the water were ga- waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright as in heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength into thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestine. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them by the greatness of thine arm. They shall be as still as a stone till thy power pa- uh, people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountains of thine inheritance in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in. In the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. So here's the song of Moses. This is the song along with the song of the Lamb that was sung, that is sung on this day in Revelation 15 by these martyrs. The prevailing theme of the song of Moses is the triumph of God over his enemies and the faithfulness of God to the promises that he has made to his people. Recall, it's not just about God triumphing over his enemies, but they said there toward the end of that song, you will bring us into the land You will establish us in the land. You will give us victory over the enemies. You will establish yourself in the sanctuary and you will do this forever. Now, the part of that part of the song is prophetic, is it not? That part had not yet happened. And in part that happened when they got into the land, right? They went into the land and they established a temple eventually. But you know what hasn't happened yet? All their enemies were never, ever vanquished from the land. You know what else hasn't happened yet? Forever, right? So there are elements of the Song of Moses that are yet to be fully complete. And as they sing in Revelation chapter 15, 
the song of Moses. They sing of the redemption that God has always shown toward his people. And then there's this prophetic element that is happening before their very eyes. God is finally fulfilling the promises and the purposes. God is finally bringing out the, the end. Thou shalt reign. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Verse 18 of the song of Moses. It's coming. And on that day, that, that's the day where they're proclaiming it's here. It's here. The song of Moses is finally fully coming to pass. We, saw, we see in, in Exodus 15, we see in the song of Moses a foreshadowing of the 70th week of Daniel. The judgment upon Egypt was very limited in scope. The judgment upon the world is a heightened form of the same judgment of God upon the unjust, upon the unbelieving. Throughout the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, in fact, we've seen several things that are very similar to the Exodus, have we not? Several allusions. Uh, even in this chapter, we see the judgments called plagues. We see several of the judgments of the Lord, the darkness, the water being turned into blood, very similar plagues to those that were found in Egypt in that day. On top of that, there have been several of the plagues that have affected the world, but have not affected those that have been sealed with the, mark of, with the name of God on their forehead through the Spirit of God. So there was a distinction made, just like in Exodus, between those that God had kept and those that had rejected him when it came to the plagues. So we've seen several allusions already. It should not surprise us because God is finishing the work. He is, he is doing the same thing in, in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ that he did in the day of Exodus. He is redeeming his people and calling them unto himself. He is buying them back once again. Once again. He bought them. He redeemed them. That's what it says here at the end, that he redeemed them, that they are a redeemed people. He's going to redeem them again. He's going to buy them back again. And there is going to be that group of Israel who will finally look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him and they will accept him and they will be brought into all of the final promises that God has always given to the nation. To this end, I think it would be short-sighted of us to see... The, just the similarities between the two contexts without acknowledging that really the song of Moses is prophetic and that it will not be fully realized until the 70th week of Daniel, all the promises of the song of Moses. It's not just a song of general redemption. And this is why I don't believe the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are the same thing. The song of the Lamb is how the song of Moses will be fulfilled. And yet, the song of Moses itself is prophetic and is specific in his faithfulness to God's chosen people, and it will not be fully fulfilled until the end of the 70th week of Daniel. So on this day in heaven, the people sang of God's deliverance of the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. They linked this to the redemption that comes through the Lamb and the final work of God when the Lord shall reign forever and ever. And again, we see the essential Jewish nature of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That God still has a purpose for His people, Israel. So we've read the song of Moses. They also sang the song of the Lamb. There's no specific song of the Lamb in our Bibles. Um, we, we can't flip to chapter and verse with the song of the Lamb, but it is quite possible that the song of the Lamb is what we're going to read in the following verses. They are going to sing a song in the following verses. And the following verses, as they sing this song, in verse 3 and verse 4, um, is not 
the, the Song of Moses. But it is a song, so it's quite possible that this is the Song of the Lamb. And notice how it begins in verse 3 here. Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. The people extol God's justice. Justice is a very elusive thing upon this earth, isn't it? The natural inclination of feelings, the natural inclinations of human nature oftentimes allow other things to override truth and justice. History books are replete with the reality that justice is rarely done upon this earth. But one day this will change because the ways of God are just and true. Verse 4, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Within the song of praise, a natural question is asked, who shall not fear thee and glorify thy name? God has given man a free will with which he may choose to exercise his volition either for or against the Lord. But it does not mean that all will not come to fear the Lord. It does not mean that all will not come to glorify his name. Just because God has given man a time period where he, through his free will, may choose not to glorify God does not mean that he will not one day do it. It only means that there are two subsets of those who come to fear the Lord. The first subset of those who come to fear the Lord are those who, when confronted with God's authority and love and holiness, submit themselves to God willingly. These worship willingly. They are rewarded with blessings that are human mind cannot even fathom. But then there's a second subset. And these are those who, when confronted with God's authority and love and holiness, reject that authority, reject God's lordship. And these are allowed to live in rebellion until the time of the end, at which point they will stand before this very God and in the presence of his greatness, acknowledge that he has the right to the lordship which they attempted to keep from him. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is why we know that what's being spoken of in Revelation 3 and 4 is a song about Jesus because they are the ones that are going to be proclaiming His Lordship. They are going to be proclaiming His glory. They are the ones that are going to bow before His name. And Jesus earned the right to be the one unto whom the nations bow at the cross and through the resurrection. Every knee shall bow. One way or another. One way is to do it willingly, to recognize who Christ is, to place ourselves underneath His mercy, and He'll give it. The other way is to live in rejection to it, at which case, on the day of judgment, the knee will bow and the tongue will confess. So these people proclaim, who shall not fear thee? They go on to proclaim that only Christ is holy, only Christ is worthy. And to this end, all the nations will worship him. We've seen this in several contexts. We'll talk about this more in the millennium. Uh, this is the idea, going into uh, a time when the nations will worship the Lord. Christ's patience has finally given way to the exaltation which he deserved from the foundation of the world. He earned through the death on the cross and through the glorious resurrection. On top of this, the proclamation fulfills all the promises of the prophets of the Old Testament who foretold of nations worshiping before Christ in his throne in Jerusalem. 
Zechariah, why are we going backwards here? Zechariah 14, 6, the Bible says, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. These are, uh, are this, is, this is millennial teaching that those who were not destroyed will worship the Lord. The nations will worship the Lord, will keep the Feast of Tabernacles from year to year. So this song is not only a realization of the prophecies of God, but it is also a reflection upon God's faithfulness. What God has said in the past will now come to pass. This is the end of the song, which we might assume is the song of the Lamb. And then we turn our attention in verses 5 and 6 back to what John is seeing. The Bible says, And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. We've seen many allusions to the temple in heaven throughout the book. We saw the altar upon which the prayers of the saints were lifted to the Lord. We've seen the Ark of the Testimony in the tabernacle in heaven. We have spoken in some detail, linking it to the teaching of the book of Hebrews, where Paul tells us that the tabernacle uh, which God instructed Moses to build on the earth was in the likeness of the heavenly tabernacle. So we know that, that all of the, the elements of the, the tabernacle um, in heaven reflect those that were upon the earth. And John looks at the temple of the tabernacle, and it's opened. Perhaps uh, if, it, if, it's, uh, if it is um, like a tent, in, in a manner of speaking, like it was in Moses' day, then perhaps those, those uh, sheets are opened up or the doors are opened up, whatever the case might be. And out of the temple comes these angels. And they have these seven vials of the wrath of God. And they're clothed in purity, showing that this is just. What they are about to do is just. Pure white linen, purity, regular symbol of purity and righteousness. And then around their chests are golden wraps, golden girdles. We've seen this clothing before. John saw it on Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. As he described Jesus, he said, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So once again around that chest is the golden girdle uh, having clothed in, in linen. It does not say white here, but a very similar idea. These angels are coming out of the temple, the tabernacle, and they have these golden vials in their hands. Verse 7 and 8. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So we see for the first time the nature of these plagues. They are the wrath of God. Notice the contrast between the judgments to come and the God who meets them out. God is the one who lives forever and ever. This world is temporary. The things on this earth are temporary. Nations are temporary. Leaders are temporary. Evil and injustice are temporary. But God is forever. And God sees the temple filled with smoke. And I find this fascinating that the temple, that no one is allowed into the temple until these judgments are meted out. The glory of God was so powerful in the presence of the temple at this moment as, as the wrath of God is about to be poured out upon the earth that no man can enter the temple until the wrath of God is assuaged. We might think of this very similar to um, the mountain. If you recall in Exodus, 
when God spoke to the people and uh, the mountain of si- uh, that, that was there, Sinai, was, was on fire, the Bible says. And God said, tell the people not to come anywhere near the mountain. Put a, erect a barrier around the mountain because if anyone crosses this barrier, they will die. At that moment, as God is expressing his own holiness, as his holiness is fully magnified, if anyone were to cross that barrier, they would immediately be struck dead by the holiness of God. Here we find an instance where the wrath of God has, has filled to such a climax that until there is a release of that pressure, until the, the, the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth, no man is able to enter into this heavenly tabernacle. And this is where we finish our exposition for today. This is the calm before the storm. Next week, as we jump into Revelation 16, it's all going to just break loose. The judgment of God is going to be poured. The final judgments will be poured out upon the earth. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.